Let's talk about planning the ideal church service. Seriously, for a minute. Could you imagine a more disastrous assignment for us to do this morning than if I just said, you know what, I'm going to get out a gigantic whiteboard, which I've done here before, and I said, let's, let's just throw it all off the table and let's start from scratch. Let's plan your perfect church service, and we're all going to be in u- unanimous agreement over what the perfect church service should be. We'll decide what day it should meet, and right there we wouldn't even be on the same page. <laughs> we'll pick what time of the day or the evening or the afternoon. You get to pick where we meet, the location, right? You can meet in a beautiful, architecturally sound church building. You can meet in a rented government facility. You can, re- you can meet in a parking lot. You get to pick the ideal church service. wonder how long it should be. Those of you are saying not nearly as long as it currently is. I very rarely have people say, Pastor, my biggest problem with the church, it's just not long enough. We want more. We want more church. Well, Angie, thank you. You just went to the top of my favorites list. You get to pick the worship, whether we have music or not, what instrumentation we have. You can pick the attire of the worship team. Yay. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, Tawny. Yeah, I know. That wouldn't be good. You get to pick the, you know, the pastor. You get to pick what kind of teaching, if there is any, how long it is that you get to pick the topics, right? What order we do things in. You want more worship? You can have more worship. You want less preaching? Less preaching. No preaching? No preaching. You understand we would not get very far in that conversation, would we? In fact, you know, there's what? 60 or 70 churches probably within 20 minutes of where we are this morning. I don't know that you'd see any two identical services, would you? Now, my question is, is God cool with that? Is he okay with a anything goes for church? Are there some absolutes? Is there a right way and a wrong way to do worship, to do preaching? to do communion. You know, there's been so much written and so much opinion out there. And to be quite honest, it would be an interesting exercise this morning if I took this microphone and I handed it around the room and I let you just say, why do you choose to be here this morning at Echo Community Church? It'd be interesting to hear that some of you would talk for 20 minutes about some long story. Some of you wouldn't have a good answer at all. Some of you would have an answer that (laughs) would get applause. Some of you might get booed. I don't know. But I think many of the choices we make about coming to a church or a place of faith has much more to do with style and preference than it does with the idea that I come here because I'm looking for a house of worship and another group of human beings where I can glorify God together and be part of being built up and building other people up. I, I don't hear a lot of people say they're leaving this church and going to that one or they stopped going to church altogether because 
the church is failing to glorify God or the church is failing in being a place where it's trying to build you up and giving you, I hear it more about style and preference or disagreements about this or inconvenience. And the question I want to go after today is, how would God design his ideal worship service? Is there an answer to that? The Bible talks a lot more about, um, there's a lot more written in the Bible about the Jewish faith and how their whole worship, in terms of just body of content, there's a lot more the Bible says about the Jews and how they worship. There's a lot less written in the New Testament about actual church and church gatherings and what we do in the time when we're together. In fact, there's some of you that are watching on Facebook right now or you're listening to our podcast, you don't go to a church anywhere. It's not part of your life. You're not connected to a local group of Christians where you gather with them regularly to glorify God together and to build each other up. And um, I'd have a hard time in this day and age convincing you why that's a problem. Because if you thought about it for a second, what is it that you can get here this morning in the next few minutes that you can't get throughout the rest of the week? What does church, what does Echo have to offer you personally regularly on a Sunday morning between 10 and 11.30 a.m. that you can't get somewhere else. Because if you've got an internet connection, guess what? You can and you do listen to Stephen Furtick or Robert Morris or Bill Hybels or Rick Warren or Joel Osteen or whoever it is that is your favorite teacher-preacher. You can get it all the time. You can get it live. You don't have to get out of bed anymore and go sit in a seat in an auditorium in a high school and listen to some 40-year-old bald guy talk about the Bible. You can get much better teaching from much more gifted teachers than I. So why do you come here? You can give. Well, I've come here to give my offering. Well, you can do that online too. Why come here for the worship? If you've got an internet connection or a CD player or a cassette deck or an 8-track player or, like me, you've got a turntable with a bunch of old vinyl records, you can have music and you can have it recorded by the people who wrote it. What is it that God intends for us to accomplish by going away from whatever our activities are and gathering together in one spot and having a church service together? Or is that something that's no longer necessary? Is it something that's outdated in this busy day that we live where Sunday's is no longer a day off or Sunday's no longer a day where we shut down business, where Sunday is filled with football and traveling sports and naps and yard work and free time and travel and slowing down and looking after us? and you can get your God fix at any other time during the week, is there still a purpose for us coming together on Sunday morning? Is there still a reason why we're sacrificially trying to squirrel money away, working as quickly as we can, checking out properties, trying to find a more permanent home if people are showing us that, you know what, coming to a place of worship at a specific time in the week is no longer valuable to me? What is supposed to happen here? I want to just, I can't juggle everything, so I'm just going to go off top of my head this morning, use my journaling Bible. Fortunately, I have some notes in here. I want to take a slow read through parts of Corinthians, and I want to open up to you um, the little but the very clear, very practical 
biblical idea we have for how God would imagine a church service. So this is the second part in our series on worship. I asked you this week to bring a Bible with you or a digital one is fine. So pull it out. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's in the New Testament, about halfway through. Any guesses on who wrote 1 Corinthians? Any, okay, New Testament book, guess Paul first if you're not sure. Odds are forever in your favor, okay? Yes. It was a letter he wrote to who? Okay, okay, okay good. Okay, we started with Corinth, yes. There were 200,000 people in Corinth, all right? He wrote it to the church at Corinth. Paul had a very special relationship with the church at Corinth. He started it. When Paul went there, there were zero Christians, city of 200,000 people. When Paul first set foot in Corinth, which is in Greece, on an isthmus, he was coming from a really discouraging job assignment. Paul had taken on this new job he never imagined he would take. He became a missionary, and he made his job to travel all over the world as he knew it at that time, telling people about the truth about Jesus Christ. And Paul had a unique challenge with Corinth. The Bible tells us in Acts that when Paul first arrived at Corinth, he says, he, the, Luke tells us Paul arrived there in fear and trembling. Because Corinth was a very, very intimidating city. 200,000 people in Greece. It had been conquered by the Romans like 56, uh, 56 BC, I think. It had been since rebuilt, and the Romans still had it as a colony. But they allowed Corinth to pretty much do its own thing as far as business and local government. It was a wealthy city. Because of where it was located, if you wanted to go north, south, east, or west, if you wanted to get to either of the ports or you wanted to go to Athens or any of the other big cities, you had to go through Corinth. And so people who passed through there spent money there. So they were very wealthy off of transit taxes, off of manufacturing, off of mining. They were wealthy. They worshipped the god Aphrodite. Big old 500-meter hill in the middle of the city. They worship Aphrodite, the god of, goddess of fertility and love. And the city was known far and wide, had a, has a historic reputation for sexual promiscuity. Prostitution, the sex trade. They were known far and wide. In fact, many sailors had a common saying among you, among them that, you know, you, going to Corinth is just not for everybody. Another thing they were known for is their trade guilds or their trade unions. They were a very social city. And so outside of occupations, you had these voluntary trade associations where people of like professions would voluntarily come together and they would pay dues. They would get together for friendship and to support causes that were unique to their trade. So the carpenters would have a trade union, not organized through one centralized business, but carpenters all over Corinth would have a trade union and they would give dues. And out of those dues, they'd do things like have a meeting hall. They would provide for weddings and funerals and parties and galas and any other services that were unique to those unions. That was pretty much the social structure. You befriended people who earned what you earned, did things that you did, and were in the stage of life that you were not so different from today. That's what your social circle was. Every trade union chose a god or a goddess to worship. So you had a culture that said it's not out of place 
for outside of your vocation for you to form a collection of similar people who have similar interests, of similar vocations, who worship a God together and who give money together for the common good. That's how the whole city operated. You also had some trade associations that weren't necessarily collections of people who are together by trade. You had other associations, as they were known, from people of different economic classes. The wealthy had some of these groups because they didn't want to associate with the middle class or the lower class. So the wealthy would form their own group. They would pick a god or a goddess to worship. They would have their own spot to meet. The poor also did this. The poor did it as a way of pooling resources to provide for funerals. So that even if you were poor, you could share collectively. It was like a social welfare system where they would take care of burying people. It's into this culture that Paul arrives. And after Paul gets there, he connects with Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and a wife team. Interestingly enough, the wife is always mentioned first in the Greek. He gives her an endearing nickname, Prissa. And it's very clear in all of Paul's ministry that he viewed Priscilla, a female, as his almost his right hand in church planting. So for those who, you know, give Paul a bad rap, and we'll look at some of those verses probably next week where Paul speaks very controversially about some things about women and their role in the worship service, it's important to keep in mind that we have to look very carefully because he, he's not being completely inconsistent with his stance. His stance was that, obviously, the fruit of his ministry was that he leans very heavily upon Priscilla in the church planting and in the launching of ministries. So we'll look at a little more about what that means. So he had three people there already, and then a little bit later on, um, Timothy and Silas, who were hung up in Thessalonica with some angry people that were running them out of town. They joined them, and that, you know, that fantastic five are turned loose on 200,000 people in Corinth, and they have a desire to reach this city with the gospel. They have no income. They have no real network of supporting churches that has been well-established. Paul later on indicates he was even getting questions about his own financial integrity, and what we find is that he set up his bivocational operating of making tents. And in his spare time, he tried to start a church. He was only in Corinth a year and a half, and in that time, he went into the Jewish synagogue, got run out of the synagogue, and had to find a place. He went into the synagogue. He started with the Jews. There was one synagogue in town. He started with the Jews because at least they believed in God. The rest of the city were pagans, didn't believe in God at all. They were all about work, party, have sex, and repeat. He went into the synagogue. They kicked him out of the synagogue because the Jews got mad about what he was teaching. However, there was a Gentile, in other words, someone who didn't grow up a Jew, who was interested in Judaism, who was attending the synagogue to find out about Judaism. And one day, Paul stands up and starts teaching, and his ears light up. His name was Titus Justus. He hears Paul teaching about Christ. And as the Jews kick Paul out, now Paul has nowhere to go to teach. The one spot in town he had kicked him out. And the town wouldn't let him rent a space because Christianity at that point was an unlicensed, unrecognized religion, and it was not a trade association, so he didn't have the same benefits of building rental. So Titus says, hey, man, I got a place you can meet. I want to know more. He says, great. Where do you live? Right next door to the synagogue. So he sets up shop in that synagogue, and what unfolds there over the next 18 months is not only does Paul start converting people and do people come to Christ, the leader of the synagogue finds Jesus, and they kick him out. And then a new leader steps up, Sosthenes. 
And the cool thing is if you read the first chapter of Corinth, we find out that after Paul left, Sosthenes gets kicked out of the synagogue because he gets converted. And this church starts to spread like wildfire. And in 18 months in his spare time, Paul launches this thriving, booming, exuberant, out-of-control church. And now where did they meet? Well, here's the thing. Archaeologists show us that in Corinth, obviously just probably about anywhere you go, the wealthier you got, the bigger the houses were. And so uh, the biggest houses that we found, you know, their kitchens would seat 10 to 15, but they had an outer courtyard that could fit about 50 people. And so the church, by default, the church didn't have a centralized meeting location. In fact, in Romans 16, 23-ish, 16 somewhere, there was only one time we know of in Scripture where the church at Corinth actually all met all at the same time in one spot. They were a network of smaller groups that met in houses between probably 15 people and 50 people. And we have some of the names, Chloe, uh, Titus, I think Gaius. Uh, there's another two or three that I can't remember off the top of my head. Crisp, uh, no, Crispus was the, was the synagogue girl that might have loved one. There's like five or six that we know for sure were like key leaders in that church. So all over the city where there's a big house, if you got saved, you probably got saved because you wandered into one of those houses, heard about Jesus, and you got saved. You became part of the church that met in somebody's house. Here's the problem. Paul writes this letter to them because of what was going on in their houses. That was a problem. The problem also was that the church didn't think it was a problem. This church at Corinth, to whom Paul writes, he uses language like, when you get together, you worship as though you are out of your mind. And he wasn't being nice. He meant loco, crazy. So much so that he said, when unbelievers or inquirers, the Greek actually says, when they wander through the courtyard, in to see what's going on in your little trade association here. They're so turned off that they leave. And he's saying, you're thinking that you're doing the right thing. You're you're doing that proudly, but you're out of control. They were exuberant. They were also completely divided. Every little small group and their family and their leader did things a little bit different. And they were completely divided. If you went from one house the next week, you went 10 blocks and went to the other house, they would be completely at odds. So you've got the church in Corinth. They're growing through conversions, and they're, they're wild, and they're crazy. And you know what their services were like? Tongues. All tongues, all the time. They were getting together, and what they were doing is speaking in other tongues. What I mean by that, they were speaking spontaneously in languages that they had neither studied nor understood out loud in its entirety for the duration of their church service, everybody at the same time. Some of you, that is your idea of a great way to spend a weekend. What Paul says is that this is absolute lunacy. And it is the opposite of what a church worship service should be. Why? Because it is divisive. It is disarray. It is chaos. 
It's not building up the group. At best, it's building up you individually because you're getting a charge out of talking in tongues all the time. And new people who knew nothing about Christ, who are here because the church has been placed here to tell them about Christ, can't even walk in and hear you talk to them in Greek. They hear gibberish. And what you also need to know is that in every single pagan pagan temple around town, glossolalia, or speaking in other tongues, was common. It was part of idol worship. Christians weren't the only ones in town who believed you could be possessed by some other spirit and babble. He alludes to that. And these letters, he's like, you babble on like all the pagans do. So it wasn't even a differentiator. So people are walking, here's what the point is, people are walking into the church and seeing nothing different in there than the pagan temple down the road, except that that pagan temple down the road was pretty welcoming to them coming in. So into this morass, Paul starts parsing out some line by line, sentence by sentence, teaching on what Christians should be doing when they come together and they gather together in church, what you should expect, why you should make time to be there, what you get out of it, what you put into it. It's some of the most practical teaching in all of the Bible. So if you'll allow me with that long introduction that I shot half my time, what happens when I can't hold my notes? Let me start at 1 Corinthians 12. And let's look at this together. 1 Corinthians 12. One, just give my eyes a second. When I look down, I see the dots from the other lights. So just give me a second here. Now about, actually, you know what? Before I read that, let me cover my bases. I'm going to give you all the blanks right now. You ready to write? Someone says, thank you. I'm going to give you all the blanks right here. The big idea is that God intends Christian worship gatherings to be, here's three takeaways from these three chapters. First bullet, both unified and diverse. Both unified in our focus. What do you mean by that? He wants us all to have the same focus, and that is on glorifying God and building up the entire group that's here, the entire church family. That's our focus. Otherwise, you're going to have 30 different ideas about what should be most important. They will all compete and will be divided. So he wants us to be unified in our focus, but diverse in how we express it. The Corinthian church said, no, we're going to be diverse in our focus, and we're going to be unified in our expression. We're going to come together, and everybody can come here to get whatever you want out of it, but the way you're going to do it is by speaking in tongues as loud as you can, one on top of the other. Paul flips that whole thing on its ear and says, when we come together, we should be unified about the main thing. But let's allow the beauty of diversity and how we express that. Second thing, the church worship service should be for both believers and unbelievers. I put some little numbers there so that you can look up in 1 Corinthians where Paul tells us this. This is not just my own unique philosophy. Paul really leans in on this particular church because they were not even thinking about the fact that some people were wandering into their front yard where they were having church and wanted to, they were curious enough to get that far, but nobody explained to them what they were doing. 
No one told them, we're going to take communion now, and this is what communion means. No one told them, we, we worship by giving here, and here's why we do that, and here's what that means. We're going to sing some songs now, and here's why we sing when we come together, and we, we want you to know what we're doing so that you can be involved in it. We're going to open up our Bibles now, and here's where this book in the New Testament is, and here's who wrote it, and here's why we think that this is important. Nobody was doing that. They were forgetting that people were walking in at a different place in mind, and those people were walking out just as lost, but now they were lost and had a chip on their shoulder and a bad experience to boot. He says it's for believers and unbelievers. And then finally, the big idea is that God intends worship, Christian worship gatherings to be glorifying to the Lord and building up the worship community as a whole. You can do things to build people up that doesn't glorify God at all. Right? You don't need a Christian minister to sit up here and talk to you for 30 minutes to build you up. There are other people with similar giftings and talents and communicate much better than the preacher of the day today. They can come and build you up. You can go to a football team and if your team football game and if your team wins, you can go home and build up. You can go to the gym and run on the treadmill and get those endorphins going, and it can build you up. You can sit around with people who you like, who can compliment you and encourage you and build you up. You can do a lot of things to build people up that aren't necessarily glorifying to the Lord. But you can also come and be so hyper-focused on making sure God hears you and you hear from God that you walk past other people who may be need to be blessed and encouraged by a unique skill or ability that God has given you for the express purpose of meeting that person's needs. What he wants, what God wants us to be able to expect when we come together is to know that this is my chance to glorify God, not privately like I do during the week, but together with other brothers and sisters. But it's also an opportunity for me to be encouraged and built up by being around you and the unique skills and gifts that you have and vice versa. So let's look at that together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes this, now, can, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Paul wants us to understand that he's about to give them some teaching on something called the gifts of the Spirit. And at this point, he's giving them some credit. If you ever want to know how to walk into a situation where you need to confront somebody about a problem that they don't know is a problem, Paul shows you right here how to do it. Assume they're ignorant and that they're not intentionally doing what they're doing just to drive you nuts. He says, I know you're uninformed and I don't want you to be uninformed. So before I drop the hammer on you, I need to teach you first. Because until you've been taught, there's no accountability. My boys don't come out of the womb knowing that they shouldn't interrupt their parents. They come out of the room thinking that they should scream louder than everybody else till they get what they want. They need to be taught. I do not want them to be uninformed about how to speak respectfully to adults. But if I just skip right to discipline and skip over teaching, that's called abuse. Accountability without relationship is simply annoying. And what Paul is saying is before I drop the hammer, and he drops the hammer on some stuff, he doesn't go in on them right away. He doesn't go in and be like, y'all need to knock off the speaking in tongues. Are you morons? Have you looked at the people leaving your back door? Are you wondering why you're not growing? Have you ever asked them? Have you ever thought you're so selfish and self-centered? You're all about your tongues. You think your tongues are so important that you got some badge of superiority. He doesn't go in on them like that. He starts off by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. And a couple verses later, he says, I want you to know. He starts off by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. He says, when, 
You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. You understand what he's saying there? He's like, in your city, you were all pagans, except for those of you who converted from Judaism. And the Jews in the city pretty much hung out in the pagan temples anyway. They mixed everything together because they didn't want to miss out on the social life and the church life. So they'd go to church, and then they'd belong to a trade union. They'd go to the idol feasts with everybody else. They'd pay their dues, worship, the, you know, let everybody else worship the idol, eat the meat. Then they'd go to the, then they'd go to the synagogue. And, and, you know, then later on people got tripped up. They're like, there's people in the church who I see eating meat offered to idols. What do we do about that? And what Paul is reminding them is this. Remember, you used to be pagans. And in the past, you used to worship idols. The difference between that idol and this God is those idols were mute. They couldn't talk. They weren't alive. You couldn't experience them. You couldn't feel their feelings. They couldn't transform you. They couldn't change the way you live. You need to understand this God that you serve is a living, breathing, active God for you to experience. And he's whetting their appetite to say one of the ways you experience God is by recognizing the gifts that he's given you. Verse 3. Therefore, I want you to know, beautiful couplet to verse 1. He says, I don't want you to be informed. I want you to know. Again, some of you need to hear this. When you're walking into a situation where you need to bring accountability, make sure first that, you, that the person that you're trying to discipline is informed and come with a heart that says, I want you to know. If you just want to discipline and you don't care about whether they know or not, that's called abuse. Make sure that the people you're trying to hold to account at the workplace, at home, wherever you are, that they know and that they understand. He says, I want you to know that those who are speaking by the Spirit of God, um, that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more to say there, but I'll continue on because of our time today. Here's where we get this beautiful part of unity and diversity. Listen to this. He says, there's different kinds of gifts, but the same Holy Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of serving, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone is the same God at work. You know what he's saying? There is no hierarchy of spiritual gifts. He's also saying you don't have to go to God and make your request as to which gifts you would like. Nor do you have to feel like you are less than somebody else because you don't have the same giftings as another person. What he's saying is there is a beauty in diversity. The diversity is we don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same personality. Some of us are more wired to speak and to teach and to evangelize, to cast vision, to see the big picture. Others of us gravitate more to gifts where we can show mercy and help and serve and be socially conscious and be aware of people's personal needs and minister to them one-on-one or in smaller settings where we're giving practical help. There's others of us who gravitate, we gravitate more to the organizing, the getting things done, saying, all right, we've talked enough about it, let's go do something. Let's put a plan together. Let's strategize. And guess what? You need all three to make a healthy body. Because if we all just see the big picture, we're going to run over people, we're going to forget about individuals, and nothing's ever going to get done. We're just going to draw pretty pictures and then go home and feel good about ourselves. If we're all just socially conscious and make sure all the individual needs met, we'll just go around handing out bottled waters and never tell people about Jesus. And if we're all just get it done and organize it, we won't have any purpose behind things. We'll get a lot of things done to have a nice spreadsheet, but it won't get done. You've got to have a mixture of all those types of giftings in every business, in every church, to make things go. Then it gets more specific. He says, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Here's an important phrase. What's it say next? Your translation might be different than mine. What's it say next in your Bible? 
For the common good, does any of you have that in yours? To each one, you've been given gifts from God for the common good. Why did God give you those gifts? For what? For the common good, you know what that means? You have unique gifts that God has given you to benefit other people. There is a reason Phil Nauer needs you here because there's something in your life that can benefit me as a man, as a husband, as a dad, as a Christian. And I hope and I pray that there's something about what God has done in my life and given me that can benefit you. You know, what is a gift? A gift is a God-given ability or skill to meet needs. That's what it is. It's a God-given skill or ability that Paul just told us is put in every single one of us. Why? So you can feel good about yourself. No. Why? So you can look in the mirror and say, this is who I am. No. Why? So you can take a 75-question questionnaire, spiritual gifts inventory, and go home and say, thus, I have the gift of martyrdom and celibacy. Thank God. No. No. It's so that it's so that it benefits the body, your brothers and sisters that are here. Pastor, how do I know what gifts I have that deserves months of teaching? How about two minutes? I'll give you something simple I wrote in the margin of my Bible. How to discover your spiritual gifts. Well, let me read what Paul says first. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. That is, when God supernaturally reveals information. It's when God supernaturally through the Holy Spirit impresses upon a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, special advice or guidance that he means that person to make clear to a group that's gathered together that will build them up. Word of knowledge. Similar to a word of wisdom, a little bit different. Sometimes they seem the same, but a word of knowledge is when God reveals to us information that we don't know in the natural through the Holy Spirit. He reveals to an individual some information that he knows that they didn't previously know. That's an important part. Word of knowledge is not you taking some rumor you heard somewhere and then saying, thus saith the Lord, and pretending like it's a word of knowledge. You might have inside information that people don't know that you know, And your way of getting it out is pretending that it's a gift of the Spirit when it's really you were just stalking them on Facebook. You're saying, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord didn't saith thus. That's called false prophecy. A word of knowledge is when God supernaturally reveals to a person information they didn't have on their own and impresses upon them that that information should be shared publicly in order to build up the hearers. And also at times for people who aren't believers to say, whoa. So when I was a youth pastor, this happened to me one time. I was leading a youth service. It was right about the end of the service like we are this morning. And I had never had this experience before. But as I'm preaching, I felt very strongly. I'm seeing this image in my mind of a crumpled up spiral steno notebook and I see pages of it. It was almost full. Like if you look through my desk and looked at all my spiral notebooks, they're not all full. Okay. 
This one was filled almost to the edge. It was a little one, maybe 20, 30 pages. I couldn't read exactly what the writing was. I'm preaching, and this is going on. I'm like, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? What do I do with this? I'm preaching, and I'm preaching, and I'm preaching, and it's getting sharper and sharper in my mind. And at one point, I just said, just hold on a second, guys. I, just, I feel like God's trying to say something to me. Can we, just, can we just be quiet for a moment? And as it's happening, I close my eyes, and I'm trying to figure out, what, what is this? And I felt in my spirit, in my thoughts, as best as I could tell, it was God saying to me, this is a suicide letter. Okay? And I'm, then my next question, and this is practical. I want you to think with me through this if you've ever had this experience. Or if God starts to talk to you this way, here's some things you can do. I recognize, first of all, it was probably worth investigating because that is not my normal train of thought. And a lot of times when God speaks to us, it's different from your normal train of thoughts. And sometimes it is just random stuff that gets in there, but it's worth investigating. The Bible says Mary kept all the things she heard in her heart. She thought about them. So I'm thinking... So, and I'm doing this in just a matter of moments. Okay, this is probably a God thing because I don't normally get images of notebooks with writing in them thinking they're a suicide note. And I'm just in my heart saying, God, what do you want me to do with what I think you're showing me? Because if it's, if we follow Paul's blueprint, and I'm going to talk about this, it has to meet a couple criteria. First of all, it has to be for the common good. Second of all, it has to make sense. We read that later on. He says, it should make sense, not nonsense, is another principle that Paul has for a worship service. If you're going to use one of your gifts, it should be in order, not in disarray. It should make sense, not nonsense. No one gets built up by disarray and nonsense except the three-year-old in a playpen, okay? It's, it's not what they do. God, what do you want me to do with what you're showing me? And what he dropped in my heart is he said, that notebook is in someone's purse in this room. Now, Listen. This is scary because God's showing me a bunch of stuff in this moment that if I say it into the microphone, I'm also now thinking about the repercussions of me saying this verbally. One of two things is going to happen. It's going to be right or it's going to be wrong, and I'm getting nervous. Can you imagine yourself in my shoes there? There's a room of you know, probably 150 high school students. I had ninth through 12th graders in this room. That's not something you take lightly. This is not a, I think someone in the room is having back pain. Listen, any week I could get up front and say, I think someone in the room is having back pain, and odds are. Not that God doesn't care, but I wouldn't say that that was a word of knowledge. I could just say, maybe there's a burden on my heart today to pray for people with back pain, which we're going to do in a minute, okay? But I'm not masquerading this as something confusing. So I have to, I'm just quickly coming to the conclusion in my mind is, listen, I'm going to have to take a risk here. The worst thing that can happen here is not that I'm wrong. The worst thing that could happen is that I'm right and I say nothing. And that girl with the purse or the guy with the purse, because you don't know, right? You carry a man purse or whatever. It's a, that's another sermon. Um, they go home or they don't even make it home or whatever. So I get in the microphone. All these kids are looking at me. I was like, here's what I think God wants me to say. Now I'm saying how much of this that I saw needs to be said. Because sometimes God will show you this much not for you to say all of it. Sometimes God will show you or tell you things that can benefit someone. You have to say, God, is this for me to share publicly? Is this for me to share privately? Is this for me to take a microphone and say to 200 people? 
Is this something I'm supposed to say that's for an individual and then I need to give them a chance to respond? If you don't know, but you think God's talking to you, you have a built-in help. Come to one of the pastors and say, I think God is saying something to me. What do you think? We'll help you. Because you know how you get better at some of this stuff? You practice. But what if the only way you can ever practice is the first time you think God's saying something, I hand you a microphone and you have to stand up and try and figure it out. That could be a train wreck for all of us. So I just, I just said, God's showing me in my mind that there's somebody here and you're in a really dark place in your life. And you may have even written it out today in a letter that you have with you right now. And I said, I just feel like God wants me to pause right here and speak to you because you're probably sitting in this room right now wondering if there really is a God out there. And you're going to have to do something to prove to me that you're real. And what he wants you to know is that he stopped this entire service to let you know that he is out there. There's hope for you. There's help for you. He hears you. You're not alone. And if you'll give him a chance, you really give him a chance and you really trust him. He can make something beautiful out of the mess that you're in. And I was ready to leave it at that, and God just said, that's not enough. I'm like, oh, boy, I know what you're going to ask me to do. So here's what I do. <laughs> I say, uh, I just said, everybody, could you just bow your head and close your eyes? I said, I don't usually do this, but the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 that the purpose of God interrupting the service is not only to encourage you, but it's to build up everybody that's here. And I want to give you a chance not only to be encouraged, but to let us as a group encourage you to. If, I pray, if that described you, would you do something brave and would you slip up your hand while no one's reaching around? I'm telling you, this little girl on the back, 17 years old, had never been to church before. I didn't even know who she was. She doesn't lift up her hand. She stands up, starts sobbing, comes down front carrying her purse. Now, every, now everybody cheated and opened up their eyes and lifted up their heads, right? She opens up her purse. She pulls out a red spiral-bound notebook. Inside of it is three pages she had written out to her mom as she was planning to take her life on the way home. My wife and some of the other ladies just came up again and ministered to her. I want to tell you, God set that young lady free. But can I also tell you what happened in that youth ministry starting the next week? Their expectation of what would happen at church began to change. Now, that's a spectacular example. Not all of, you know, we, there's some of those spectacular gifts, and we get enamored with them. Miracles, tongues, prophecy, words of wisdom and knowledge. There are other gifts like helping, hospitality, serving. The point of the matter wasn't that God gave me some spectacular gift because he put me on some sort of plane. He, in that moment, needed me to trust him enough to understand not only what he was telling me, but then how to use wisdom and how to get that gift out of me to be able to minister to other people and build them up. And it met all of the criteria. There's more than one way of doing that. I was terrified. The last feeling you feel when someone comes forward in that situation isn't relief, but there was part of me that was in awe of that whole situation too. I was like, if I was in that room and I didn't know Jesus, even if I wasn't that girl, I'd either been like, hey, this is a Chris Angel moment and that was all set up, or 
that is the real deal, and you can't mess with that. And Paul says, when you do this right, and it's not nonsense, it is a sign for believers, but it's a sign for unbelievers too. He says, you don't have to be afraid to use your gifts when you come together in a worship service, but you have to do it in order. You have to do it wisely. You have to do it where there's, where there's uh, safety in the room. And what he says is it's always going to be a lot for people, but nonsense and disarray is what throws people off. So I don't have any. I'll look at my notes later to see if this is the part I was supposed to stop, but it, I'm out of time, so we're going to stop here. <laughs> I'll invite the worship team to come back. As they do, I felt as I was making that joke about, see, this is the problem with not thinking about your jokes beforehand. Usually when I think about beforehand, they're less funny. But when I made that comment about, hey, I could pray for pain in the back every week, and that would be somebody, I felt just like the correction of God for like, don't be so flip about things that people might actually be walking through today. So here's what I want to do as the worship team comes forward. I want to lead us in an opportunity of a prayer for salvation. And then I want to pray, just, I just feel led this morning to take just three or four minutes here at the end of the service to anoint people with oil who need physical, emotional, or relational healing. Something in your life is broken. Some of you came here today specifically expecting and hoping that today would be the day of your breakthrough. Others of you have just gotten so accustomed to living with whatever malady you've got that it's not even on your radar. You didn't even think of asking God for it. All I want to do this morning is make an opportunity to minister to you. That's all. So if you're willing and able, will you stand with me this morning? And can we just take a moment and pray as the worship team plays quietly behind me? Then I'll just give you some simple instruction for how we're going to do this. We'll create an atmosphere of faith here and just invite the Holy Spirit to, to do what he wants to do as we end our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, I love you. And I recognize that in this room or perhaps watching on Facebook or listening to the podcast, there are folks who are looking, they recognize now they're looking for relationship with you, God. They recognize that deep inside of them is a desire you put there to know him, to know who you are, to know where you came from, where you're going. Thank you for leading us to this moment. So all across this room, my friend, sir, ma'am, young lady, young man, if if you would like to have a personal relationship with God, I want to lead you in what you, all you need to do in order to make that possible today. The good news is that Jesus has done all the work for you. He's looking at you right now, and you know what I want to tell you? Even before you pray a single word, he's looking at you, and he would want me to tell you on his behalf, he loves you just like you are. You are beautiful to him. He loves you. He doesn't start loving you after you decide to be a Christian. He loves you as much as he will ever love you. He can never love you more. He can never love you less. He's drawing you to him today. Well, how do I connect to him? Simple. You use your voice. You use your words to say the following to Jesus. You can join me if you like. Dear Jesus... I believe in you. I believe you lived on this earth. That you never sinned. 
that you died on the cross in my place and that you rose from the dead and you're alive today. I know I need a new start. I'm sinful and I'm broken. Please forgive me and I accept your forgiveness over my life. I choose you to be my Lord. I step off of the throne of my life and I invite you to sit there. I step away from the driver's seat. You sit there. Now you lead and I will follow. Thank you for saving me. In your precious name I pray. Amen. With every head up, with every eye open, if you prayed that prayer, you are gloriously and wonderfully saved. All of heaven is rejoicing this morning. You are a child or a daughter, a son of God today. The most important next step you've got is to tell somebody. Tell the person who invited you. Tell somebody sitting in your row this morning. Say, I prayed that prayer with the pastor this morning, and I've invited Jesus into my life. They'll know what to do. They'll know to take you out there to the, to the New Here booth, get you one of our welcome kits. has a Bible and some other things in it to get you started. But here's what we're going to do this morning as we uh, land the plane. I want to invite uh, anybody that's here in the house that you would like me to just have a, have a just pray over you. You're sick in your body, you're sick in your soul or your thoughts. You need some type of a breakthrough physically, relationally, or emotionally, or spiritually. I don't want you to hesitate. You either know that it's you or you don't, (laughs) right? If you would just let me pray over you real quick, I'm going to invite you to come down from your seat and just line up across here. Come on. Just line up. If you could kind of line up at shoulder to shoulder. It doesn't have to be a perfectly straight line. We won't measure anything. Why are you doing it this way, Pastor? You don't have to do it this way. But I feel like this is what we need to do this morning. The Bible says, if any among you is sick, call for the leaders of the church. They'll anoint you with oil. We've got some anointing oil here. And we're going to pray. Are you going to pray over every individual person along prayer? Sometimes I do. This morning I'm not. Here's what I'm going to do. Come on, come on, come on. I just want to make sure. Um, Pastor Brian, can you help me? We just want to stretch this line out this way. What I'm going to do in just a moment, once I make sure I know where the line begins and ends. Okay, yeah. There's some space down here too. What I'm going to do is this. I'm going to invite you to help me create an atmosphere of worship here today. So in just a moment, I'm going to turn over to Keith. He's going to lead us in worship. We're going to just create an atmosphere of faith. See, you're part of this. All I'm going to do is just take a little oil on my finger. I'm going to go. I'm going to start down this side, and I'm just going to anoint everybody in the name of Jesus. And here's what I'm going to believe. that we don't have, Today, we don't have to pray a 30-minute prayer over every, everybody. This is God's moment. Amen. God can listen to volumes, or he can already move. In fact, some of you are experiencing healing right now. You're feeling it in heat in the affected area of your body. You see, God doesn't need extra theatrics. He just loves to hear our faith. If people got out of their seat and came out here, you know what they're saying? I might be worried about what you're thinking, but that's not enough of a deterrent to keep me in my seat. I want what God has for me today. I don't want to tell you, friend, it's not my faith, but your faith that is making you whole. So you don't even have to tell me what the need is. I'm just going to move quickly down the line. I'm going to anoint you each with oil. Just feel free. Well, what do I do while I'm waiting? Just think about the Lord. Think about that breakthrough. Think about his goodness. Remember when you got saved. Whatever it is, go to that place. Worship along with the worship team. I won't scare you. I'm just going to come along, just along, just touch you lightly on your forehead. And our congregation is going to help us create an atmosphere of praise. And God's going to do breakthrough. Sound good? 
Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. We consecrate this moment that we have. I thank you that you can operate in hours and you can operate in milliseconds. We just clear the way right now, Holy Spirit, for you to minister healing physically, emotionally. There are those who have been hurt and devastated and broken by people who will never ask their forgiveness. I pray right now you flood into their heart and heal those broken places. Lord, mentally, all the different areas, whatever it is that these folks are standing in for, you know and they now. And in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask for healing and completeness to flow. Hallelujah. Let's worship together.